0: from Washington, D.C. and around the world. This is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges.
1: This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm Mimi Gerges. The Department of Agriculture has a new plan to manage civil rights discrimination complaints. USDA is launching an IT system to store all complaints that come to the department. The platform, stored in the cloud, will house information across the agency to better track complaints. The General Services Administration wants to improve transparency for its spending on IT to provide better information on how IT dollars are spent. The GSA released a request for information to quote, run IT like a business, by leveraging data to make data-driven decisions and analyze trade-offs between cost, quality, and value. Initiatives include technology pilot programs, data collection, and guidance development. The Navy wants to better protect itself against new, rapidly developing cyber threats. Vice Admiral Jeffrey Trussler, the leader for information warfare and naval intelligence, says a risk management framework is necessary. Trussler says once vulnerabilities are known, the hard part is fixing systems across all ships, planes, and networked systems globally. Federal agencies have 60 days to identify all critical software at their offices. A new White House memo says agencies must implement security measures within the next year. Tony Scott is CEO of the Tony Scott Group. He's former federal chief information officer. Tony, welcome to the program.
2: Thank you. Great to be here.
1: So what prompted the White House to put this memo out?
2: Well, I think what you've seen over the last um, uh, few months, if not year or so, is the rise in ransomware attacks. And, And a lot of the cause of ransomware or the vulnerabilities that are being exploited have to do with software that hasn't been upgraded or patched or may contain vulnerabilities that Uh, the institution either didn't know about or wasn't aware of. And um, I think it's the reality that in most institutions today, there's a really complex set of both infrastructure and applications that run uh, that organization. And I think this uh, is an attempt to force institutions to look at the critical software that they have you know, have an inventory. And then ultimately uh, the goal is to understand what vulnerabilities and uh, risk you're taking on by, um, by using that software uh, and, and the patches and updates that need to be made to that software. So I think that's the ultimate goal.
1: There's um, yes. guidance that's been put out by NIST. What do agencies need to start doing now to ensure their compliance with, those guid- with that guidance?
2: Well, I think the first thing is, you know, have an inventory, understand what it is you have, um, understand its role, um, and then secondly, it's um, understand uh, what vulnerabilities come along with that software. So, you know, are there patches that need to be applied? Are there updates that are needed? Um, you know, those are the, sort of primary things.
1: What do you think the hardest part is going to be in getting this done in 60 days?
2: Well, I think it's um, in every organization there are silos. There are people who run the networks. There are people who run the applications. There are people who uh, manage infrastructure. um, And uh, it's been very clear to me as a CIO in the private sector that you know, getting the silos to talk to one another and communicate uh, is probably the hardest piece. So um, I I think for agencies, we're gonna see that same problem that there's a lot of players and a lot of, you know, functional expertise in various, uh, you know, silos in the organization, but getting cross communication um, going so that they can present a unified, Picture and a strategy to the CIO uh, even just for reporting purposes I think is gonna be one of the uh, sort of really big challenges.
1: Do we know what the cost of implementing this order will be? Is it budgeted for?
2: Well, I would say (laughs) it's a a really hard question. Um, Some agencies that are further along in the journey will find this relatively easy to do. If you're starting from scratch, if you've been a sort of a foot dragger in terms of modernization, um, you're going to find this uh, probably pretty burdensome, and you would need additional uh, budget. So I think it just depends on where the agency is. Um, you know, during my tenure, we saw a pretty wide uh, gap. You know, we had agencies that were really trying to stay on top of things. Um, and had progressively done so. And then we had other uh, uh, agencies that were pretty far behind the power curve.
1: You know, I wonder if this provides new opportunities for contractors or will this be, will the process be internal to the agencies? What do you think?
2: Well, I think it's gonna have to involve the whole community. Um, There's no way you're gonna get this done without um, really leveraging the strengths and abilities of your contractors, of your staff, Um, and even other agencies that you interact with. So uh, there's hardly a single agency in the federal government that stands alone. It has lots of interfaces typically to other agencies, uh, maybe even to the private sector uh, and so on. And so one of the challenges is really understanding what do I own and what am I responsible for versus this other institution, whether it's someone I've contracted with or uh, another agency, um, and and their capability might form a, prit- a critical part of your own capability. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of blurry lines in some cases there, and I think sorting all that out is going to be interesting as well.
1: Well, Tony, we'll watch that as that 60-day deadline approaches. Thanks so much for being on the program.
2: I appreciate it. Thanks. Have a great day.
1: Coming next, the rebalance to Asia plan turns 10 years old, straight ahead on Government Matters. How Washington is still working to pivot to this approach. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. The Pivot to Asia plan from the Obama administration turns 10 years old next month. The plan aims to expand economic potential, advance democracy, and create a military presence in the Asia-Pacific region. But the U.S. has fallen short. That's according to Zach Cooper. He's senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. He's writing about foreign policy with China for Foreign Affairs magazine. Zach, welcome to the program. Great to be here. You say that there's, quote, a disconnect between ambitious rhetoric and underwhelming action when it comes to the U.S. relationship with Asia. Explain that.
3: Well, if you think back about a decade when the Obama administration announced that the U.S. would be rebalancing towards the Asia-Pacific, we said that we were going to make a whole commitment to the region, right? We are going to move our military more in that direction. We are going to increase our economic engagement with the region. We're gonna promote democracy and human rights there. And I think if you look back at the last decade, the results are pretty meager. Uh, We've tried to increase our military presence, but actually there hasn't been that much of a change. Uh, In fact, if you read President Obama's speech from 2011, he talked a lot about how getting out of Afghanistan would mean more of a US presence in the Asia Pacific. And of course, we're still in the middle of this right now. Uh, On the economic side, we haven't really had any clear trade or investment strategy since the US pulled out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership a few years ago. And then on human rights and democracy, we've seen backsliding actually throughout much of the region and in the United States. So I think if you look at the key priorities that we have had in Asia over the last decade, it's, it's very hard to say that we've accomplished them.
1: And, and you're not seeing much focus from the Biden administration, is that correct, on Asia?
3: They came in really promising to focus much more on Asia, and I think they've done quite a good job with some of our key allies, Japan, Korea, to some extent Australia, and then with a few partners as well. We've really seen progress with with India and with Taiwan, where I think they're struggling is in Southeast Asia. And, and unfortunately, you know, this is much of the region, right? There's 650 million people in Southeast Asia. Um, countries like Indonesia, the Philippines, Vietnam are absolutely critical. And we just haven't put the energy into that part of the region that we've put in elsewhere.
1: So what do you think the current administration's biggest priority should be for Asia?
3: I think the most important thing what our Asian friends want to see from us is a positive trade and investment approach. And unfortunately, this is a real challenge for the administration. Uh, The White House keeps promoting what it calls a foreign policy for the middle class. And when you hear them talk about this, often it seems to mean that they don't support a broader trade and investment plan for the region because they don't think it would support the American people in the way that it should. And so this leaves many in Asia very confused about what the U.S. can actually do for them, right? Um, Of course, many in Asia want more U.S. engagement on the military side, but their top priority is really their economic development. And so if we can't find a way to support them in those endeavors, it's gonna be very hard for us to get traction in the region over time.
1: Well, let's talk about China's military strength. What would you say, Zach, is the balance of power right now between the U.S. and China in the Pacific?
3: I do think the United States still has a bit of an upper hand, although it's a declining upper hand, and uh, the, the balance is getting much closer than it's been at any point in recent memory. And of course, this means that the one contingency that many of us are most worried about, a possible fight over Taiwan, is becoming slightly more likely as time goes on. And I think certainly as we get towards 2025 and 2030, or 2035, that military balance is going to become more and more concerning. And so from an American perspective, We need to be doing everything we can with our key allies and partners, countries like Japan and indeed the Philippines, to reinforce the U.S. presence in the region and to make sure that we have a strong deterrent capability. But the trends are very much against us at the moment.
1: So policy-wise, what do you recommend uh, defense-wise? Do you recommend we go all-in on the Pacific? And is that doable? Uh, Can we do that?
3: The United States has global responsibilities, and I don't think that's going to change. But I do think the balance of where we put our time and our resources has to change to some degree. That doesn't mean we aren't going to keep investing in our relationships in the Middle East or our alliance in Europe. Um, But it does mean that, in my view at least, when the United States thinks hard about where it has to prioritize, that Asia should be the number one region. In part, that's because our allies in, in Europe Uh, They want cooperation from us, and and we should certainly give it to them. But they're capable, if they get their act together, of dealing with the challenge from Russia. Um, That's not the same in Asia. If we leave our friends in Asia alone to deal with China, they will have no choice but to bandwagon with Beijing. And so we have to stand up firmly in Asia, and that means putting real resources into the region. And frankly, that's just something we haven't done since we announced the rebalance to Asia over a decade ago. So I think it's about time that we actually put our money where our mouth is.
1: Very quickly, Zach, on human rights and promoting human rights, that's always been a priority, but how do you actually do that?
3: It's really hard. I think the first thing is we, we learned the last few years that if you don't talk about human rights, you certainly are not upholding them. So we have to push back against uh, repression in Hong Kong uh, genocide and Xinjiang, and these other kinds of human rights violations that um, we have to stand up and talk about them because if we don't do it, no one else will. I also think, though, that doesn't mean that we can't cooperate with other countries who aren't perfect democracies or even aren't democracies at all. We've got to find ways to work with all of the allies and partners that we have in the region and not insist that they transform overnight but just push them slowly towards these key values that we think are so important so it's it's a long project but i do think it has to be part of how we see our long-term vision for the region
1: all right zach we'll leave it there thank you so much for being on the program
3: thank you for having me
1: next the pentagon has its own cyber certification program straight ahead on government matters asking if all agencies should have their own programs you can find every episode of our show and podcast AT GOVMATTERS.TV. I'LL BE RIGHT BACK. The Department of Homeland Security wants to find a path forward to enhance its cyber hygiene practices. DHS is tracking progress on the Pentagon's Cyber Maturity Model Certification, or CMMC, for lessons learned. Nick Sinai is a senior advisor at Insight Partners. He's former deputy chief technology officer of the United States. Nick, welcome to the program.
0: Hi, Mimi. Great to see you.
1: So explain what a cyber certification program is and what it's meant to accomplish
0: yeah so the the whole idea here is um contractors have a lot of um sensitive but unclassified information and adversaries have been uh stealing that and so the department of defense uh has designed the cmmc process to uh, essentially uh, um, improve the security improve the cyber hygiene of defense contractors and and hook it into the procurement system um and so that's that's the whole goal of the cmmc and it's 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 had some some growing pains and is, is not uh, operational yet. Um, but that's that's what DoD is doing and it, it sounds like from a, a, a recent uh, uh, posting we saw that that uh, Department of Homeland Security is looking into this and, and, and tracking quite closely and actually doing a uh, what they call a Pathfinder an experiment to, to see if uh, uh, they might uh, take a similar approach.
1: Well, you did mention the the DOD's program and that Homeland Security is looking at it. Um, what are those growing pains that you mentioned? How is that Pentagon program going?
0: Well, the, there, there's a, a strategic review initiated by the deputy secretary. Um, and so uh, you could call it a pause or a strategic review. Um, but it, it's, it's clear that um, um, the administration has heard some of the uh industry feedback that this is 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 quite a a substantial compliance regime and the the threat is real and the and and the goals are good um but this is a a heavyweight system that is being set up uh with a a set of third-party assessors and you know a whole ecosystem um and so this is something that if we're going to do is going to live for decades and decades um and so we have to be pretty sure that this is the best way to solve the problem and i'm i'm personally not convinced uh that such a a broad and heavyweight uh, compliance regime is the best way to solve the problem um and uh it, it seems like uh, dod has had some uh challenges in in, in also setting up a, a third party accreditation board and so this whole ecosystem of of kind of who who helps the dod kind of uh vet and accredit the the defense contractors um as you can imagine, there's a little bit of a gold rush among uh, um, services firms to do that so
1: well um, well but Nick let me let me ask you before you get too far along uh, in in that because I, I guess certification programs are a good thing so how do we have this kind of certification to keep contractor networks secure in a way that works
0: yeah so that's that's really the it's a great question Mimi of of um, how do we do things in a risk-focused way. So, how do we we um, kind of uh, really uh, focus the efforts, um, and and how do we not have kind of a peanut butter approach where we spread spread it around too thin, but we but we actually understand um, you know what are the real risks, and and um, you know how do we also account for a dynamic environment, right? The the systems that they're building um, those are dynamic. The threats are are dynamic as well. And if you have a system that is, is a compliance system that is very static, uh, you risk being being unable to to really uh, achieve the goal of of protecting that that sensitive information.
1: You said that it takes a really long time for uh, companies to get through those certification programs. How do you speed it up, but not compromise on quality?
0: Yeah, and I think that's. Um, one of the things that the Department of Defense is looking at, and, and also something that, that DHS is looking at as well, is how do we use technology and automation uh, uh, rather than kind of checklists and, and, and paper-based processes? Because that's that's been the rub with traditional compliance regimes. Um, and you could think about the, the um, authority to operate, the accreditation to go live with, with uh, a software inside of, inside of the federal government. You could think about FedRAMP, the cloud certification uh, process. They traditionally have been very uh, checklist and kind of compliance, these long uh, um, static processes. And we have to find a way to bring technology and automation uh, to these uh, certification regimes. Um, and, and they have to they have to adapt to to kind of the modern threat. And what happens is we, we kind of lock in a approach and and then we don't uh, adapt to kind of what the adversary is doing.
1: You brought up Fedramp, which is cloud certification briefly explain a little bit more about that and if that's a better approach that that could be used to certify contractor networks.
0: Yeah, so FedRAMP isn't designed for contractor networks. It's designed for uh, software vendors, uh, commercial off the shelf, uh, as well as um, platform and and, um, uh, um, infrastructure as a service vendors, the big cloud vendors as well. And, and the um, you know FedRamp has been around about a decade has a couple hundred companies that have gone through it um, and you know has kind of become the gold standard for, for security in, in government the challenge is is there's tens of thousands of great uh, software as a service companies and, and very few of them are, are uh, FedRamp certified and I see this with Insight's own portfolio we have uh, a dozen companies that have lived experience of going through FedRamp which often takes uh, over a year and, and, and can take over a million dollars of investment. And so it just, it becomes a, a, a challenge for these companies to get through this. And part of it is making the security improvements, but a lot more of it is the documentation, frankly. And so uh, uh, actually a dozen uh, of our companies uh, worked together on a, on a white paper to, to provide some both evolutionary and revolutionary reforms uh, to the new administration and to think about how to speed up Fed ramp and it's, it was good to see that in the, um, the cyber executive order that came out, uh, there actually were a, a series of, of um, initiatives around uh, modernizing FedRAMP. So I'm, I'm optimistic that uh, we'll see some progress on that front.
1: Well, sounds good, Nick. Thanks so much for being on the program. Appreciate your uh, insights. Thank you, Mimi. If you miss an episode of Government Matters or want to see it again, it's at govmatters.tv and connect with us on social media. We want to know your thoughts and suggestions for the program. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, and subscribe to the Government Matters YouTube channel. I'm back in two minutes.